Hi, and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. My name is Todd Vandorf. I'm the I, and I think you're interesting. I've always been obsessed with ghosts. I don't believe in ghosts, but I'm fascinated by them. I'm fascinated by the mythology around them. Like, there's a part of me that wishes they were real, even though the thought of that I would die and become a ghost is absolutely horrifying. So that's why I love this new movie, A Ghost Story, which is about a man who dies and becomes a ghost. He becomes a ghost with, like, the sheet over him. And then he spends basically eternity in this little space. And it's a movie about mortality, but it's also about time, about what it would mean to actually have to live forever. It's like no other movie I've ever seen. It kind of starts out feeling like a a stereotypical American indie film and then just very quickly veers off tracks. Um, I think you'll all really like it, and I'm really excited to have its director, David Lowry, in the studio today. Thank you for being here, David. Thanks for having me. So I try to avoid this question because there's only ever one answer to it. But for our listeners who haven't seen this movie, uh, it is about a man who who dies uh, and comes back as a ghost, traditional like Charlie Brown ghost in the white sheet and everything. And then sort of it's a meditation on time and mortality. And there's a guy standing around in a white sheet the whole time, which probably could be ridiculous, but Mm -hmm. is not somehow. But I have to ask where did this idea come from? Because it's it's just out there enough that I know there's got to be some sort of story behind it. I just really like the image. I really found it both amusing, but also very emotional. Mm-hmm. And and visually, it's just a striking image. So it, it functioned on all three of those levels. And I was going back through my, my blog that I've been keeping since high school mm. and uh, found an entry around seven or eight years ago where I was just like cataloging appearances of ghosts and sheets and other media, like whether it was film or music videos. There's a great uh, Department of Eagles video that has ghosts in it. There's uh, this Spanish film called Finistere that yeah. I hadn't seen, uh, but I'd seen the trailer for it. There were about two ghosts riding a horse across the countryside. And it's just like such a, even in uh, Halloween, when mm-hmm. Michael Myers wears the sheet with the glasses, it's a really striking image. It really mm-hmm. just is funny, but also unsettling at the same time. And And so... That image was something I'd been wanting to utilize for a while. Mm. I'd always wanted to, you know, I'd, I'd written a script where that showed up and never made that movie. I made a short animated film that has a brief appearance of a ghost in a sheet. And uh, I liked the idea of making a traditional horror film yeah. where uh, it's like poltergeist, except you always see the ghost and, and the ghost looks like that. So it was something I'd just been waiting to use, waiting mm. for the right project. And, and this was the right one. Yeah, yeah. What is it about that image? Uh, I don't know if you did any research in this. I, re- I realized as I was watching the movie that, um, I have no idea where this idea for like that's what a ghost looks like comes from. But what is it about that image that's compelling to you personally? But also, did you sort of do any digging into where that comes from in our in our culture? A little bit. I didn't go that deep. But it was like you know, it was popularized as a theatrical version of of ghosts on stage. And I think beyond that, it came from burial shrouds, yeah. and that would be what corpses were draped in. And so, it just was a natural a natural way to illustrate a a spirit coming back to life. But I didn't dig that much further into it. And the thing that I love about it is that at this point, culturally, it is a very recognizable image that is, I mean, I think almost universally understood to mean a ghost. You show that image to anyone around the world, I think they'll know what it is. But you don't really think about it, about what that means. You don't think about it in terms of the the fact that this very simple childlike depiction 
is meant to represent a spirit that is stuck in one place after having passed on from the mortal realm of existence, yeah. which is a lot to pack into one image. But because we're so used to that that image and that symbol, we don't really think about it. So now we have, you know, a Snapchat logo is a ghost or when you type in ghost on your iPhone, like that emoji pops up and it's someone, it's it's the little sheet ghost. Yeah. Um, there's a Lego figure with that same, <laughs> same thing. Uh, and so I like the idea of taking what is a very familiar image and unpacking it a little bit and finding a new way to utilize it. And right. that was, that was exciting to me. You mentioned something just a little bit ago that I'm not going to let slide, which is you've been keeping a blog since you were in high school. <laughs> um, what do you get from looking back at that? Like, what do you get from that connection to your, like, to your teenage all the way to your present self? I mean, it's really interesting. I try not to go look at it too much because it could be a, you could do a, I could do a real dark, deep dive on that. I can watch like my writing go from like the melodramatic musings of a 18 year old to the pretentiously academic version, 24 year old version of me to mm. uh, the more laid back guy who's about to turn 30. So it's interesting to go back and look at like the various parts of my life and how my brain was working, where I was developing and, and I still am. So it's, mm. it's a, I guess you could say it's a work in progress, <laughs> but it, it is, it's interesting. And I try, I, I try not to do it too often because I would, I try not to be too self-aware and right. that is a very big avenue towards self-awareness to have an almost daily journal for dating back to then that is publicly available. But I like that it's out there. It's It wasn't meant to be like this lasting testament to anything, but it was a way for me to build an audience when I wasn't able to make films and it was a way for me to just put thoughts and ideas out there and to develop my own tastes and, and modes of thought. And, and so it's it's been great to have it, but uh, it's it's definitely dangerous to to revisit it. Where do you who do you think um, in your artistic tastes and your artistic pursuits? Like, how have you changed the most over those years? Like, what has been the the greatest shift in how you pursue your own art and also how you consume other others' art? I think I've just become more open. You know, you go through this period when you are, I find, more radical in your opinions and more defiant in what you believe the ideals of art should be. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I've become more accepting of all forms of, you know, film or media mm. or whatever, whatever it may be. Uh, I don't think that's a softening. I don't think that I'm just becoming more passive. I think it's just that I'm more, you know, I see how things work in a less stringent way. And I like to embrace more. If you were to ask the 22-year-old version of me, what do you think about yourself directing a Disney movie? Mm. He would have been pissed off and furious <laughs> to even ask that question. And the 34-year-old version of me that set out to make that film was like, you know what? Actually, I think there's value in this. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't, I don't believe that that's a lessening of my standards. It's just, an, it's a more of an embrace of the type of, you know, I, I, I embrace what film can do in a broader sense at this point in my life. So that's something that I feel I've, I've changed in. But I still like all the same things. I mean, I have, there's so many ways in which I haven't changed. And I still as I did back then, like things with a passion mm -hmm. and I, I get really caught up in them. And once I've liked something, I usually don't, I don't, my, my opinion doesn't change. I don't dislike it. My tastes mm -hmm. may change. Like I don't love Bergman the way I did when I was 19, but I still really love him. So yeah. it's, 
it's, I just feel like I, I get more inclusive as I get older. Yeah. I like to ask uh, directors this question. Do you remember the first day of shooting on your first feature? Do you remember what that day was like? And, and, and do you have like memories of that emotional experience, that physical experience? Oh, hundred percent. I mean, even the first feature I made right out of high school that no one will ever see, mm. um, that I don't really consider, it was just a learning experience. I remember that first day just wondering like, oh my God, I've got uh, some friends here who are going to act in this. Where do I put the camera? Right. It was a very profound moment of uncertainty. <laughs> and then my first, my real first feature, St. Nick, uh, was a, the one day where we had a ton of extras. And I remember just thinking, what have I gotten myself into? I've just got to wrangle all of these, you know, all of these kids in a, in a location that we don't have permission to shoot in. How, do my, how am I going to make this work? Um, so yes, I remember, I remember the first day of everything I've ever made. What about, what about that person or that, that guy, that guy who on that first day, like what was the thing that you think that you learned making that first film that you've just kept with you through the whole time? That as soon as you roll the first take, it all starts to click into place. Yeah. Like you just have to, you have so much anticipation building up to that first take of the first day and so much preparation, so much worry and then it's a, as simple as just getting it in the can. And mm-hmm. then you've gotten, you know, it probably sucks. It's probably not right yet, but you've gotten something going. The machine is underway and the wheels are turning. And at that point, the mechanical part of the process takes over in a very big way. Right. And you've got to go move on to the next take so you can move on to the next shot so you can make your day. And back then I didn't even know what making the day meant. But nonetheless, like you start to just embrace the the process mm-hmm. and it's less theoretical it's all the, all that worry kind of melts away because all of a sudden you just have to get the movie in the can in a physical way that was something that i remember from that very first day when i was 18 and i i find to be true on every movie i've made since mm-hmm. who are some of the directors that you mentioned bergman who are some of the other directors that sort of inspired you as you were starting out your career that you really hoped you could someday be in the same ballpark as it, it's evolved as i've gotten older i mean i think Tarantino was certainly the first filmmaker. I think Pulp Fiction came out when I was 13, and that really galvanized me as a moviegoer because up until that point, had it all been, it all been just Spielberg and Tim Burton and George Lucas. And so that was the that was a turning point, and I wanted to be like Tarantino. Mm-hmm. And I found that as I got older, like that, he he kind of paid, he opened the door for a lot of other filmmakers that I wanted to be like. Mm-hmm. And a really important step for me was to to stop wanting to be like other filmmakers and figure out who I was. So that was a, that was a a turning point, but nonetheless, like, you know, I can kind of like look at the point in my life when I got Netflix was sort Mm -hmm. of a, a big door opening because up until that point I was a big screen purist. I only wanted to see things on the big screen and I didn't have, I didn't go to film school. So I didn't have access to a lot of the French new wave or, Mm -hmm. or Cassavetes movies. And so once Netflix emerged, all of a sudden I just jumped headlong into so many different types of movies and was so taken with all of them and just kind of wanted to just absorb as much as possible. So mm-hmm. there's a period from between the time I was like 22 or 23 until I was like 27 where I felt like I was just catching up with all these movies and they're all influencing me in a, in a tremendous fashion, but I was just absorbing them all. Not really, I wasn't trying to make movies in those veins, but I was just embracing them all. So I went through this huge Cassavetes phase and really was you know, deeply... Uh, went through a, a big Pan-Asian phase with Sai Ming Lang. I mean, I think that's like one that still lasts, like a, a Pichapong Virasethical. I was like discovering all of these films like that uh, were coming out around, you know, 2002, 2003, 2004. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, oh God, I mean, it, it was everybody. I mean, that, that was Godard, Truffaut, all those guys too, because I just never seen any of their movies before. So I was just sort of like just devouring it all and uh, 
and finding great value in all of it. There, there was rarely a moment where I would see a film that I just didn't like or didn't mm. get or wasn't fired up about. Mm. Mm. Interesting. You mentioned uh, just from sort of the references you're making, I, I sense that you and I are of the same age, which is sort of children of the early 80s. Yeah. Uh, and I felt that a lot watching a ghost story because there's this connection to like this old world, the analog world that we were born into. Yeah. But then the internet comes along and like there's this very jarring shift without spoiling it for anyone who hasn't seen it. There's this very jarring shift into, I guess, a more modern world in yeah. a ghost story. Do you think about that sort of that passage of time at all? Do you feel that that cleaving in your own life between like this world that was and now this world that is? Yeah, I think about it a lot, especially in terms of how it affects my day-to-day life and how it affects the neurological you know, pathways in my brain. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely wonder if I was better off before I had a phone in my pocket all the time that was telling me all the things that tells me every minute of every day. Mm-hmm. I I think a lot about whether it's softening me, like mm-hmm. making me like, I, I, I do, you know, I've done enough research on it to know that like our neural pathways are changing with mm-hmm. the way we intake information at this point. And I don't think it's for the worse, but sometimes I, sometimes I do. Right. Um, so yeah, that is something I think about a lot. And all of my films have been set in eras prior to that technology for that reason, because I feel like I'm able to tell stories better if I just remove that right. facet of life from them. A ghost story is contemporary, but at the beginning, it's sort of in an elusive period where you don't really see that much technology. You see, you know, MacBooks and things like that, but right. not a lot of mobile phones. And, and yeah. the setting itself is very antiquated. The house mm-hmm. feels old. It feels vaguely rural. That's the type of neighborhood I live in, and I like that. And uh I respond to it. So I do feel like I sort of hang on to the past in that regard, even mm-hmm. though I 100% embrace the future at the same time. Hmm. Uh, all those locations in A Ghost Story, uh, at, at the end of the film, I actually stayed through the whole credits just to see where it was filmed, which yeah. I don't always <laughs> do. It says that, the, that you filmed this in, in, around, in and around Dallas primarily. Tell me about finding those locations, especially that house that has to be so important to the whole film. We... Definitely knew the house was a key part of the movie, mm-hmm. and we were we spent a lot of time looking for it. And I was open to lots of different types of houses. You know, I didn't want to make mansion, and I didn't want anything that was too big or too rundown. It had to fit that sweet spot where, you know, Casey and Rooney are basically playing my wife and I, and so mm-hmm. I wanted to find a place that felt like a place that she and I would live. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, we found this house that was abandoned, or it wasn't abandoned; it was being used for storage. And it was, you know, scheduled for demolition at some point in the future. So there wasn't anything being done with it. And it looked a lot like the house my wife and I had moved out of when we left Texas. And it just felt like home to me. It felt very familiar. And it was at that point gutted. We had to fix it up and like put floors in, put a kitchen in, do all this stuff. But nonetheless, it felt very comfortable. Mm -hmm. And it had that right blend of, you know, that that wonderful rural quality that you can find right in the middle of the city in Texas, in Dallas, mm. where you can drive to a skyscraper in two minutes, but at the same time, you're in the middle of a field surrounded by trees and there's grass sprouting up in the, in the middle of the street. So mm. I really felt very comfortable there and it felt like the right place to do it. And it also was in Irving, which is a suburb of Dallas where I grew up. So it had an added layer of nostalgia that was really meaningful to me. Uh, going back to your going back to your home hometown or where you grew up, I guess it can sometimes be uh, tricky. What what was it about Texas that made you want to to film there? I think have you filmed there before? I believe you. you I mean, have. I've tried to. I've tried yeah. to make everything there. I mean, Pete's Dragon obviously was on the other side of the planet, but um, <laughs> everything else was either set there or meant to be filmed there and or partially shot there. So, I mean, the Body Saints, we had to go to another state for a lot of it for tax and purposes. 
but we went back to shoot, you know, some of the scenes in, in that movie, we used the same locations, uh, again, in the ghost story, like the big prairies and the fields uh, mm. that come into play at a certain point. And I just like making movies in my backyard. I mean, that's what I grew up doing. And I think it comes down to just being comfortable. Mm-hmm. And I like making movies in a place where I'm comfortable. I also have a lot of means at my disposal in Texas because I grew up working there. Mm-hmm. And that's where I kind of like got my first footing in the industry. So I have, you know, friends in the in the industry who I can, you know, employ and a lot of talented uh, technicians, a lot of talented actors. And I like to work with people I know. So it's a comfortable place to make films for me. And so... In this case, because it was so small and it was self-financed and, and we just wanted to make it with our friends, it made sense to go back to Texas and shoot it there. But, you know, Ain't the Body of Saints was meant to be a movie that evoked a certain spirit of Texas for me. And it was very important that that movie be at least partially shot there so we could get those landscapes in there and that, that sort of spirit that Texas has. And the movie I just wrapped is a true story that was set in Dallas, like the true story occurred in Dallas. And that was one of the things that appealed to me. So it was a a real bummer that we had to go somewhere else to shoot it. Mm. And uh, and we'll, we'll be getting some pickups of Dallas to make sure it feels like Texas later mm. this year. But there's a great deal of value to be had in being able to go to sleep in your own bed at the end of a long day of shooting. And, and I subscribe to that entirely. What is it about, I've heard people say this also, who want who specifically want to film in Texas. They say it has a feel that other yeah. places don't have. What is it that Texas has that say Oklahoma or Louisiana or one of the states bordering it doesn't? It's, it's weird because you could go to parts of Oklahoma and they look exactly like the parts of Texas that I like. Mm-hmm. And Louisiana has its own feel. It's completely different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of people don't realize that. But like when you cross that state line, it is a very like physical change that occurs like in the earth. Like mm-hmm. they're, the, the ground is different. It's a seismic thing. And uh, so all the trees are different. The landscape's different. But Texas itself does have, you know, corollaries both in New Mexico and in Oklahoma and and so what it ultimately comes down to for me, I think, in addition to the landscape, which is unique, is the sense of spirit that pervades it. And I don't mean that in a political sense, although it was related to that. Obviously, the politics in Texas are a mess, mm. for me personally, at least. And I, uh, I, I, I'm I, not a fan of that. But there's a, a rebellious spirit to the entire state, to its history, to, and that does inform the politics to a certain extent in a negative way. But it also gives it this sort of quality that I think is appealing to artists. There's the fact that it just looks the way it looks. And you have so many different types of landscapes all crammed into one gigantic state. And the fact that it just goes on, you can drive through Texas for days and not get out of it adds this sort of like, you know, it feels like a country all its own. And Mm so it's just a je ne sais quoi tied to the specific aesthetics that are also very appealing. You know what I love? I love a nice shave. I love the feel of the lather. I love the feel of the brush on, on my face. I like all of the elements of that go into making a shave. Just a great experience. And I, I found that the secrets of being really well-groomed, of looking really great, is often a great shave. And The Art of Shaving, founded in New York in 1996, has been helping guys look their best for over 20 years. It has your total routine covered, whether shaving, beard maintenance, hair, skin, body, or fragrance. The Art of Shaving's award-winning products are formulated with the highest quality botanical ingredients featuring pure essential oils. 
The four elements of the perfect shave have been created to deliver smooth results every day. Start by prepping skin with their signature pre-shave oil, then create a thick, foamy lather with shaving cream applied with a shave brush. Shave, then replenish moisture with their aftershave balm. Finish off the perfect shave with one of their five new fragrances, sandalwood and cypress, oud suede, vetiver citron, green lavender, and coriander and cardamom. Each cologne has been carefully assembled for a distinctive scent. The Art of Shaving offers a convenient replenishment service that allows you to save on your favorite products while never having to worry. And you know what? Our listeners will receive 15% off their first order and free shipping by using the promo code TOD. That's my name, T-O-D-D. To get the offer, go online to theartofshaving.com. Use my special promo code TOD to get 15% off your first order and free shipping. Visit theartofshaving.com for this special offer or for a consultation with a grooming expert, step into one of their many retail locations near you. Now, you've mentioned a couple times things that are sort of autobiographical. You've taken from your life and put into these movies. And I certainly, when I first started out writing, I would just do like, well, this is my life. Yeah. I'm just going to tell this story from my life. And it was very boring to anybody who wasn't me. How do you find ways to use the autobiography of yourself to inform your work without, you know, making it too insular? That's a good question. And, you know, I've not yet made anything that is literally autobiographical. And yet I feel you know, all of the movies I've made are about me. And I, I try to just tell other stories, but I, in telling them, I always have to find that hook that, you know, the thing that makes me care about it. I never want to just, you know, focus purely on myself. I don't want to be, you know, navel gazing to that extent. Not that there's any problem with it. You know, Proust is one of my favorite authors and he made a career out of doing that in a really wonderful way. But I do always have to find that hook and find that way in and and whether that is something as simple as giving a character a fondness for something that I myself enjoy or like I wrote the script that I didn't direct uh and I was having trouble figuring out how to attach myself to it how to integrate myself into it and one easy way to do that is to set it in Texas so I did that that was an easy way but then I also uh put a bunch of Star Wars figures in the main character's bedroom and that was just it was something as simple as that like something mm-hmm. that I still have in my bedroom uh, putting that little physical affectation in there was enough to really make me feel like this was my story and I could move forward as such. Um, other times it's far more literal in terms of how personal it is. Like with Ain't the Body Saints, that was written while I was courting my wife and we communicated through letters. And so that played into the script as I was writing it. With a ghost story, it definitely was very closely based on an argument I have with my wife about moving. Mm-hmm. And then with Pete's Dragon, it's a little bit more vague. It's not quite as on the nose, but definitely my feelings towards, you know, how I felt when I was seven to nine years old, like are just deeply rooted in that story and and the relationship that Pete has with both the dragon and with Bryce Dallas Howard's character are based on, you know, relationships I've had in in my own life. And I, with my pets and with my mother. So, (laughs) so it's all in there, even though, you know, Obviously, that's not an autobiographical movie in the literal sense, but they're all, they're all, it's all there. And that's what I like to do. I don't know if I'll ever like become a memoirist in the sense of just literally 
adapting chapters from my life, but they all are very autobiographical in a one way or another. Well, if you want to reveal right now that your best friend is a giant invisible dragon on this podcast, like I'd be fine with that. And let's 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 uh, let's just make that happen. <laughs> <laughs> I I see him right now. Well, you guys can't, but he's like right. Yeah, um, I actually did want to talk a little bit about Pete's Dragons. It's a wonderful little movie that I think is on Netflix now. For yeah, it is. Yeah. Which so, is so weird. Yeah, listeners can go yeah. and, and watch that right now. It and a ghost story are very different from each other, but very much also obviously from you. You can see the connective tissue between them. What do you enjoy about moving from something that's a little more conventional because Pete's Dragon is a family film that has, you know, kids' story stakes and all of that. And then a ghost story is very different and very um, uh, sort of experimental in some ways. What do you find about interesting about switching between those two modes? They both satisfy different parts of me the moviegoer in me, the part of me that loves to go see uh, heartfelt, spectacular summer movies really loves Pete's Dragon. And the part of me that wants to be challenged and provoked and see something that uses cinematic language in a in a unique fashion and and perhaps attempts to push that language a little, you know, one step in a new direction uh, really enjoys a ghost story. So I'm really making movies for myself. But because I my, my tastes are so wide and varied, I can see that like there's like this great disparity between the two. But ultimately, they're to me very similar because they both just appeal to me as mm-hmm. as a moviegoer. In terms of like the difference between making them and like how, what what appeals to me about you know juxtaposing one experience with another, um, there is a lot of value to be had in making a film where you are trying to just make people happy which is what I was trying to do with Pete's Dragon. Specifically, I was trying to make me as a seven-year-old happy. But nonetheless, like the goal with that movie was to just make the widest possible audience as happy as possible and give them a full-fledged emotional experience that ultimately winds up with them smiling. (laughs) And I like that. That makes me feel good as a human being. It makes me feel good as a filmmaker. And the fact that we succeeded in doing that, by and large, was one of the, the high points of my career and my life as a filmmaker. With a film like A Ghost Story, I really enjoy narrowing that focus and trying to please a much smaller um, subset of of film of cinema fans and film goers and, and cinephiles and audience members, um, of which I'm also a part. But I want to engage with the medium as an art form on a different level. Uh, I want to engage with it as art more than I want to engage with it as entertainment. And I really want to challenge myself as a storyteller and as a filmmaker and push the medium forward a little bit. Like I want to, you know, I don't think this movie is like doing anything terribly original or terribly unique, but I do think that I'm trying a couple new things and I'm trying to like expand my horizons as a filmmaker and, and, and the way in which I use cinematic grammar. And I get a lot out of that. So mm-hmm. both of those film, both, both of those films do different things and they're both have different intents behind them, but they both, give me a lot as a filmmaker and hopefully you know even though they appeal to very different audiences i do hope there is some cross-pollination there and some crossover there because certainly for me as a moviegoer i would go see both of them a lot of people coming up as directors now you know they make their sundance movie or they make like a movie like ain't them body saints that gets a lot of acclaim and a lot of attention and then they go and you know they make batman versus the flash or something you obviously have done, worked within the studio system, but Pete's Dragon is not a mega blockbuster. Yeah. It's, it's a much more personal, smaller scale film. Is there a part of you that's attracted to those giant franchise things? Would you be interested in doing that someday? Or do you feel like that's kind of, it's harder to get those creative personal impulses into those films? I don't know. Like, I mean, 
I love Star Wars as much as anyone of mm-hmm. our generation. And so, like, certainly if someone offered me a Star Wars movie, I'd be like, yeah, let's do this. Um, and there are bigger movies that I want to make, like really, you know, like things that would be gigantic and cost a ton of money. And that is exciting to me. It is going to be harder for those movies to feel personal. And that's mm-hmm. just something I understand and realize I'm going to have to wrestle with as I, if, if and when I embark upon it. And that's just the nature of, of this art form, which is also, a, you know, it's art versus commerce. Like, mm-hmm. they, they were, I don't even like using verses, art and commerce. They have to function as both when they hit a certain level because so much is on the line. And that's just something that you have to be ready to deal with and be open to and and not stress out too much about. And I do think it's possible. I mean, I feel like Pete's Dragon was, you know, $65, $70 million to make. And I was able to make something that's very personal. Mm-hmm. And I see other filmmakers making, like, you know, obviously Mad Max, I think, is the high watermark, Fury Road, which is an incredibly personal vision that cost probably $200 million. Mm-hmm. And nonetheless was, like, incredibly successful, both as a personal vision and as something that makes audiences extremely happy. Mm-hmm. So it can be done. It's a It's tough. And I know that if I embark upon one of those projects, it'll take a lot out of me and it'll be a lot of, I don't want to say fights, but a lot of discussion, a lot of spirited discussions. But I do think it's possible. And, and, and that potential leaves that door open for me to pursue it. Right. Uh, if the right project comes along. But, you know, at the end of the day, it has to be the right project. So you did Pete's Dragon and then I heard about a ghost story at Sundance. I was like, wow, he made another movie already. And now you've shot another film. Are you in a place where you just sort of keep working or are you you finding ways to take breaks to recharge? This is my break. I'm, <laughs> I get to hang out and just talk for a while rather than <laughs> call the shots on a set or, or sit in an editing room. I consider myself very lucky that I'm in a position where I can get movies made and where they are being made. And while the iron is hot, I'm going to strike. I don't know how long that'll last. Hopefully it keeps lasting. Hopefully I have a long career, but I love movies too much not to make them. I love watching them more than I love making them, but I, whenever I watch a movie, I just want to, I feel like I'm taking part in a conversation and I want to have my say as well. So then I go make a movie mm-hmm. and um, I want my arguments to keep getting better and better. I'm fascinated. You've, you've written and directed and then also edited mm-hmm. all of your films and you've edited other people's films as well. What do you get from being involved at all three stages of that process of being, you know, there before the movie exists, then shooting the movie, and then putting it together at the, at the end? When I'm working, you know, for other filmmakers in those regards, it's really valuable to put myself into their shoes because ultimately you are there to contribute to, but ultimately service their vision. And that is a humbling experience and a very valuable experience because it broadens your own horizons. Sometimes you agree with what they want to do. You know, so I've been in the edit room with another director and just can't believe they want to use the shot they're going to use, but ultimately it's their call. So Mm -hmm. I can wage all of my arguments and, and make my case, but ultimately it's their call. And my job is there to execute that. And it really helps if I can figure out a way to see it their way. Mm -hmm. And so now that I'm largely just focusing on my own movies, those skills have really helped me. And I kind of look at, you know, it's all one big process. It's all directing. I don't delineate between one or the other. They're all just part of directing for me. But the skills that I've gained in doing wearing those individual hats for other people have been invaluable. And so as I'm embarking on, you know, each film and and looking at it as like an all-inclusive process, the films that I've edited for other people do come into play when I'm making decisions in the writing process or when I'm on set picking shots. 
I'm thinking about scripts that I may have written for someone else. And when I'm in the edit, I think about the times where, you know, I was on set for someone else holding the camera and thinking, oh, I should have gotten that shot. So Mm. it all kind of ripples back. Tell me a little about writing a ghost story because there's not a lot of dialogue in it. Uh, The closest thing that comes to like a long spoken passage is there's a monologue late in the film from a character who we never see again. Yeah. But it's obviously structured. It's like very tightly structured in the way that you want a screenplay to be. So tell me about finding what this movie looked like. And was there a point when you were trying to have a lot of dialogue or was it always very sparse? No, the script was 30 pages mm. and or 34 pages, I think. And 10 of those pages was a huge scene between Casey and Rooney that ultimately was cut down to very little. It's mm-hmm. at the beginning of the movie. It's at the end. You get little sprinkles of it here and there. We shot it multiple times in various places. And you, you see, you kind of get the cumulative value of those 10 pages, even though it probably amounts to a minute of dialogue on, on screen. And the finished film really is quite close to the script. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot in there that changed. We, we flipped the order of certain think uh, certain scenes, but by and large, it's, it's the same. And so there was a great degree of intention with every scene that I wrote but there wasn't much to them on the page. There'd be like a sentence or two, except for that argument that I cut out, the 10-page thing, and then the monologue that you mentioned in the middle. Um, and that was important to me. I wanted to make a movie that was largely silent, and I knew that there would be a lot going on in every scene, and, and every composition would would carry a lot of weight. But I didn't feel the need to put too much down there on the page. Mm-hmm. We do see some other ghosts in the movie, which is not too much of a spoiler. Did you come up with your, sort of your own rules for how they function or who those other ghosts were, I guess? Yeah, I mean, we actually had a lot of rules. That was one of the things that's in the script that got cut out was like the defining of the rules. And, and they were the same rules that you see in Ghost, the Patrick Swayze movie, the same rules in Beale Deuce. I mean, we were kind of just like pulling lots of rules from other classic ghost movies that I liked. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, the movie just didn't need that. Like, you just understood intuitively from having seen those movies how this version of a spirit haunting a house would work. But I like the idea that, you know, I really do believe that when you leave a place, you leave something behind. And and in this movie, you're leaving, you know, energy or a spirit behind. And, And so I felt like, okay, yeah, there's a house next door. Of course, that house will also have have a spirit in it. And that would probably be the one, you know, the one realm, the one level on which he can actually communicate with another entity is if it's someone else who's passed away and is still haunting their, their domicile. So that was just a, it was an image that I thought was amusing mm-hmm. as so many, so many things in this movie started with an idea that I thought was funny. And then I kind of just removed all the humor from it, but it's still there. I mean, that scene, hopefully people laugh at it. It's funny. The other ghost has a flower, a floral sheet. So mm-hmm. we called it the grandma ghost. And, uh, and it was originally just going to be the wave. That was all there was going to be. But as the scene, de- as we shot it, and then as it developed in the edit, it felt like there needed to be more there. And and so we we not only added, you know, a communication between the two of them, but then added some more scenes between the two of them because it was just such a, a nice moment to see him actually connect to somebody. Mm-hmm. Did you uh, did you get to do reshoots or were you able to find more material that you could sort of create that story out of? We did, we, we did reshoots. I kind of like always do that. I mm-hmm. always set aside money and time for pickups and reshoots because it just feels helpful to me. Um, and so we shot everything up until the house meets its untimely end because we knew that once that happened, we wouldn't be able to do anything else. And then, uh, and then we went off and cut the movie for a few weeks. And in those few weeks, Pete's Dragon opened. So I went and did the press for that. And, and then when that was done right after the movie opened theatrically, we went back and did 
another like uh, 10 days of shooting just to get all the extra things that I felt would be helpful. And then, uh, and then we were done. Mm-hmm. Um, you've worked with a lot of really great actors uh, over all your films. What have you learned about working with actors over the course of working with some really great ones? I've learned that every actor is different and every actor needs something a little different from you as a director. And I've also learned that if you hire the right person for the job, it's okay to just step back and kind of let them do that job. Mm -hmm. And it was so hard for me to realize that. I always felt like I needed to be there holding everybody's hands, not just the actors, but every crew member's hand and like explaining exactly what I wanted and, and guiding things and shaping things. And over the course of a few films now, I've realized that, you know, a big part of the process is just bringing that team together. And so when it comes to actors now, especially on the film I just wrapped, I really wanted to put that into practice, to take a step back, to not really demand that we do 18 takes unless I had something very specific that I wanted that they weren't giving me. Mm -hmm. If I didn't have some reason to ask them for another take, I would just trust that they gave me what I wanted, even if I wasn't 100% sure, and we would move on. Mm -hmm. And that's proven to be the case now that we've been editing it, proven to be true that, you know, there's things that you see an actor do on set or things you don't see. They'll, you'll miss it because you're not watching it on a big screen and uh, and you're focused on so many other different things. And in you know, for example, like working with Robert Redford, like within one or two takes, you're gonna you've gotten everything you've needed. Unless there's like a technical flaw, there's no need to keep doing something else because he's given you everything you need because he's Robert Redford. Mm-hmm. And that's the same you know same with Casey, same with Rooney. They all are coming prepared to do a good job because this is their their livelihood and their craft and their passion. And uh, unless there's something that, some miscommunication between the two of you, nine times out of 10, they're going to give you a really great version of what you want on take one. And on take two, you can kind of finesse it. And mm-hmm. if you if you need, if you you need see like a space to say, hey, do it, you know, a little differently or do it louder, do it slower or whatever that adjustment might be, you can go in there and make those adjustments. But if you cast right, they're going to be, you know, at n- operating at 90% on take one. Rooney Mara in this movie eats a whole pie in what seems like one take. <laughs> it was one take. <laughs> and uh, to me, it's a thing that should not work but does. Uh, tell me about creating that moment and, and working with her to make that as riveting as it is to watch somebody eat food, which is normally not very interesting. I think it's the fact that everyone assumes it's not interesting that makes it so interesting because you go into that and think, at this point, everyone's heard about that scene. So it's not going to be, uh, you know, there's sort of like an, an, right. an anticipation for it, I imagine, when folks go to see this film. Um, if they've heard anything about it, that's one of the things I probably heard. And yet the scene goes on for so long that I feel like it'll just kind of do away with whatever anticipation you bring with it. Mm-hmm. You know, at a certain point, like two minutes in, you'll be like, oh, okay, I get it. It's still going on. Why am I still watching this? And that was the idea. It was like to have a moment that is uncomfortably distended and mm-hmm. prolonged and extremely private and very truthful in its sustenance. You know, it goes on for a long time because she's she's still doing it. Like whatever is going on inside of her as a human being at that point, it's compelling her to just keep keep going. And that was what Rooney and I talked about. We talked about how grief manifests itself in the most mundane activities and also that grief usually is a very private thing. Mm. And it can be public, but it really rears its head in an ugly way in the most private moments. And that's what we wanted this to be. And so we didn't talk about, like, we didn't block. We we figured out where she would sit down so we could put the camera in the right place. But beyond that, she knew what the scene needed. She knew why it was in the movie. And so we didn't have to talk about it that mm-hmm. much, which was a 
agree. I feel if we had over-talked it, it would have just, you know, fallen flat on its face. Casey Affleck, he's under a sheet for a lot of this movie. Mm -hmm. Was he ever not under the sheet? And also when you talked with him about that, was there like any moment of, oh, God, I don't want to be under a sheet for an hour and a half? He was psyched to do it. He was pumped (laughs) about it. He ultimately was not under it for the entire movie, Mm -hmm. uh, both for technical reasons and for scheduling purposes. You know, we had to come back for those pickups that I mentioned earlier, and he wasn't available at that point. He was bummed that he couldn't do it. He really wanted to, you know, lay claim to this role in totality. Ultimately, I think he still can. Like, I don't think anyone's watching this movie, like, cataloging the minute, you know, differences between one sheet and another. (laughs) You know what I mean? And there were scenes in the movie where he's in the shot with the ghost at the same time, which was definitely somebody else. But um, it was our art director. And you can't really tell. So... It wasn't that big of a deal, but I know for him it was a big deal to give that sheet to someone else, to bequeath it to somebody else. Mm. But, you know, I still wanted it to be him. I wanted it to be a character. I felt that was important. Mm. Uh, in the time since you filmed, you filmed this last summer, it sounds like. In the time since you filmed it, he has uh, won an Oscar and uh, become like a much bigger name and also had sort of some controversy around mm-hmm. some, some dark things he's done in his past um, or is accused of doing in his past. How, how, how has that made you feel about the movie because he was not a household name. Yeah. I mean, he, he, people knew him, but knew him as like Ben Affleck's brother. Yeah. How has that been watching his career go in all these different directions as you know, this movie is coming, I guess. I mean, it was, it was, you know, amusing or disconcerting depending on what part of that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I met him in, in 2012 and we, uh, at that point in his career, he was sort of like kind of like figuring out how to redefine. He hadn't been in a movie in a while. He hadn't done anything for a while. And he was trying to figure out what he wanted to do as an actor and whether he wanted to keep acting or whether he wanted to keep directing. So I met him at a point where he was just, he wasn't a movie star. You know, he'd, he'd been nominated for an Oscar at that point. He'd gone through the trials and tribulations of his documentary or his faux documentary. And, uh, and he was sort of, you know, hadn't been in anything for a long time and had I don't want to say vanished from the public eye, but for all intents and purposes, he had. And so I just got to know him as a human being, like just very down to earth. And and so when you know someone on that level and then you watch them become so focused in the public eye, I guess you sort of are, you know, wondering if that will change, if it'll change how they behave, if it'll change them, if it'll change the work you're doing with them. In this case, it hasn't. Like he's still just the Casey Affleck that I met in a little coffee shop in Los Feliz six years ago. But, you know, his taste and material hasn't changed because he won an Oscar. He's not like all of a sudden trying to land a big studio movie or, you know, try to join his brother in the echelons of superhero films or anything like that. When he was on his Oscar campaign, he was directing a really small, intimate, you know, art film that he had written that he'd been trying to make for years. And that's why he looked the way he did with that beard. And so like he sort of is he's a a contrarian Oscar winner Mm -hmm. and he's a great actor, but he's not like... He's not fitting the mold of what, you know, the best actor is going to, you know, do after they've won that award by any means. Mm. And so for me, it's just been, it's been sort of fun to watch it happen. It hasn't really affected this movie mm-hmm. for better or worse. I mean, I think uh, there are definitely like, you know, more people who are like maybe aware of him as Casey Affleck as opposed to Ben Affleck's brother at this point. But this movie is so weird anyway that I don't think it's going to reach, you know, any that many more people than it would have prior to this. Mm, mm. This is just you wait when it makes $500 million. I know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's some bizarre cultural touchstone that, like, just everyone wants to go see it. You worked with Will Oldham on, who's 
records as Bonnie Prince Billy. For yeah. People who never heard of him on Pete's Dragon. And now he is in this movie. What is it that you like about that guy? And why, why do you keep uh, coming back to his, his work? I, he's just always been one of my favorite musicians ever since I first discovered him back in the, you know, early aughts. Mm-hmm. And when I was making this short film called Pioneer, which is just a bedtime story over the course of, told over the course of 16 minutes, I wanted someone who could, you know, tell that story well. And I knew that Will could do it because I think all singer-songwriters are storytellers and he's a performer. Mm-hmm. And I found out after the fact that he was trained as an actor. That was his first mm-hmm. love. And he he ultimately, you know, moved away from that into, into, into being a musician. But um, he just captivates me. I just really, I enjoy him. I enjoy his his worldview. I enjoy his art, what he does. And I feel that he contributes something very special to any project he takes part in because he takes it so seriously. He gives it his all in a really profound fashion. And so we met on Pioneer. That was the first time we we would work together, first time we met. But then I, you know, have been trying to make sure we keep that collaboration going if it feels right. It's one of those collaborations that I don't want to just throw every movie at him because it's got to feel right. But Pete's Dragon, it was wonderful to have his music in the movie that sort of kicks off the movie. And for this movie, um, you know, once again, I had a story, I had a monologue, and I needed someone that could hold court over that scene and over the movie for eight minutes straight. And I knew he could do it. Right, right. We're coming into the end here, but I I have a few more. uh, The first of which is the aspect ratio of this movie. Obviously, the modern reference is it looks like an Instagram, yeah, uh, an Instagram crop, but it has kind of the rounded corners. Um, it reminded me of a Polaroid in some ways. Uh, obviously, it's I think it's the old Academy ratio. It's the Academy ratio with those vignettes, which make it its own thing. Um, so tell me about finding that and why was that the right shape for this movie? I really, as an audience member or as a viewer of anything, I like seeing things in a frame. It just helps me contextualize what I'm looking at. I often find that my own movies never feel as real to me as they do when I'm looking at them on my phone because that just somehow puts them in a box. Mm. I'm a big screen person. I go see everything on the big screen. But for my own work, it helps to watch it on a phone because then it finally feels real to me. Mm. And with this film, I felt because the main character is stuck in a box for eternity, it was thematically appropriate to use this aspect ratio. So that's where the, you know beyond just wanting to make a movie in the Academy ratio, that's where I, you know, I I kind of started from on an aesthetic level. And then putting those curved edges in is something that came about in post-production where I was just trying to make that frame feel more profoundly felt. Mm -hmm. It does add a degree of nostalgia because it feels like, you know, whether it's faux nostalgia as per Instagram or real nostalgia where you're thinking about slide projectors or old family pictures, it does have that. And that is appealing to me. But it also just helps me, you know, put the image more squarely in a box. You're never completely unaware of the aspect ratio when you're watching it. And I love that when we watch these movies now, um, either at the cinema or at home, every screen is a rectangle now, unless you're at an old theater that has proper masking. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to see it with a pillar box on the side that really makes you feel like you're looking past a proscenium. Mm -hmm. And I personally get a lot out of that. I really like that. I love watching... Meek's cutoff or an Andrea Arnold film at home on my, you know, widescreen television and just feeling like I'm peering through something to see the image. And that makes me happy. This movie has an interesting relationship with time. And I'm wondering how you came up with the, how it sort of, as it enters its probably final half, it starts having a more loose relationship with time. Let's put it that way without spoiling it too heavily. I read Slaughterhouse-Five 
in junior high or high school when most people read it. And the concept of being unstuck in time, mm. of Billy Pilgrim being unstuck in time, had a resounding effect on me. I just loved that idea that without wanting to or, you know, meaning to, you just kind of slip through time in all sorts of directions. Mm. You're not bound by the point A to point B temporality that we all are as human beings. And I've enjoyed that in other works of art as well. I love um, Virginia Woolf, as anyone who watches this movie will realize. And she not only uses time as a storyteller in a really profound way, but in Orlando, she has a character who, once again, is not bound by the rules of time. Mm. And and that just appeals to me. There's something about that that I really like. And so when I was writing the script and it was marching forward in this, you know, this grand forward march across time, at a certain point, I felt we'd gone as far as we could go in one direction and it just made sense to go in the other. Mm. And I like that. I just, you know, I don't know if we as human beings will ever be able to transcend the uh, the linear aspects of this fourth dimension that we all participate in. But mm. if we do, that could be pretty cool. Well, uh, listeners know that I ask people the same short questions at the end of every episode. We're going to do them in a lightning round. What's the last uh, piece of pop culture that you've consumed and what did you think of it? Book, movie, TV show, whatever. I watched... John Wick 2 on mm. an airplane yesterday mm. and thought it was terrific. I was a fan <laughs> of the first film and thought this one was just as good. Mm. But because I like to talk about the big screen, I'll talk about that too because I saw The Beguiled uh, the night before and thought that was terrific as yeah. well. Yeah. Who's the director you've learned the most from that you've never met? Paul Thomas Anderson. Mm. Okay. And finally, what to you, not a movie, but book or TV or, or music or whatever, what is the greatest work of art you've encountered and what have you taken from it? <laughs> oh my God. I know it's an uh, easy one. I People love this the one. first thing that popped into my head was Joanne Newsom's record "Is." Oh yeah, which probably isn't the thing that's had the most effect on me. Maybe it is. It's mm -hmm. the first thing that popped in my head, and I'm a big believer that when you're at a restaurant and you are picking things off a menu, you should just go with your gut instinct. Whatever popped in your head first is what you want. So let's just—I'm just going to go on record saying that has been the most profoundly affecting uh, work of art in my lifetime. Wonderful. Uh, a ghost story is in select theaters now. It will spread throughout the country throughout the summer. Uh, Pete's Dragon on Netflix. Some of your other films are also available elsewhere. Thank you very much, David Lowry. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. I Think You're Interesting is hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwerf. In case you hadn't guessed, that's me. And I'm going to ask our editor, Peter, to put Beethoven's Ninth over the end of this because people who've seen this movie will understand the reference. And those of you who don't, will still like it because it's a great piece of music and it's in the public domain. So hopefully that happens. I'm going to read you some closing credits now while you listen to the music. Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishak Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulreg. Our production coordinator is Paige Bethman. Our audio engineering and post-production are thanks to P3 Post. And we recorded this week's episode at the wonderful Village Workspaces podcast studio in Santa Monica, California. Our editor is the aforementioned Peter Leonard. Our recording engineer is Che Brooks. If you could take just a moment to rate, review, and subscribe, I think you're interesting on whatever platform you listen to, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, whatever you use. We'd really appreciate it. It helps us get the word out there. It helps us uh, get to people who might be interested in hearing the tales of people that I, Todd Vanderwerf, think are interesting. We'll be back next week with another interview with someone from the world of arts and culture, somebody who is, I guess, pretty interesting. And until then, if you die and become a ghost... 
make sure to keep the sheet on because nobody wants to see what you look like underneath it. Thank you.